This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 1st of October 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, the broadcaster Petrop Chaloni will be here to peruse the day's papers and also tell us about the significant role that he played during the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. We'll join Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who tells us about being camp in Prague. And then Andrew Muller will be offering us his usual sideways take on what the past seven days have taught us. For we learned this week that the Bank of England, not hitherto widely noted as a hotbed of insurrectionists, had decided that the UK's experiment with the exciting economic theories of new Prime Minister Liz Truss and new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng had gone on long enough. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, here are the headlines. The US President Joe Biden has warned Russia that the United States will not be intimidated by threats following Vladimir Putin's decision to annex four occupied regions of Ukraine. Putin had insinuated that he would be prepared to use nuclear weapons to defend the newly annexed regions. Meanwhile, President Vladimir Zelensky announced a surprise bid for fast-track membership of the NATO military alliance on Friday, and Russia vetoed a UN Security Council resolution introduced by the United States and Albania. China abstained from the vote. Burkina Faso's military leader, Paul-Henri Damiba, has been ousted in a military coup. The plotters said they decided to overthrow Damiba because he'd failed to tackle an Islamist insurgency. Burkina Faso has now closed its borders indefinitely and all political activities have been suspended. The UK's Prime Minister Liz Truss has conceded that there had been considerable disruption to the UK economy following her mini-budget. The pound slumped to a record low against the dollar this week and there have been widespread calls for Truss to act to calm the financial markets. And the Japanese wrestling star turned politician Antonio Inoki has died at the age of 79. Inoki's remarkable career included bouts against the boxing legend Muhammad Ali and he even travelled to Iraq during the Gulf War to negotiate the release of Japanese hostages. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Right, well, I'm joined in the studio by the television and radio broadcaster Petrock Trelawney. Uh, and Petrock, it's lovely to have you here again. Good morning, Georgina. It's lovely to be back. And since we last saw you, of course, huge events taking place mm. here in Britain, huge in- international events, really, because the death of Her Majesty the Queen affected the world and I think was probably the most watched uh, event that's ever taken place in this country. You were at the forefront. Well, I was involved, yes. I was very honoured to be part of the BBC's commentary team. I was based at Westminster Hall where uh, the coffin of Her Majesty the Queen uh, lay in state and was visited by uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who queued up uh, for 12, 13, 14 hours. There's amazing images of of the queues stretching for miles down the south bank of the River Thames. I talked to a lot of people in the queue and lots of them, I think, were slightly mystified as to why they'd ended up there. They, they, (laughs) they, they, They admired the Queen. They 
largely described themselves as being people who believed that the royal family was the right way forward for, for Britain. But they said, you know, they'd never thought of themselves as, as joining this queue and spending 12 hours in it. But something about the events of the week moved them. And I think it was very convivial, the queue as well. I mean, the, it was very well organised. There were lots of, uh, of loo stops. There were lots of places to buy food. You could have a glass of wine. A lot of friendships were formed, again, of people thrown together in these extraordinary circumstances. Mm, it did become its own thing, didn't it? Mm. Mm, and and, and a huge kind of media event in itself. Yes, and then the BBC also put on a, a, a stream of, uh, a, of of scenes from inside Westminster Hall. So those who couldn't physically queue or couldn't get to London abroad or whatever were able to, to watch the scene. And I, I don't think anyone expected that to become quite such a significant part of the broadcasting of the week's events. I found myself, you know, putting it on just to see what was going on. And, and half an hour later, you'd realise you, you, you'd been watching it as if it were, you know, the, the latest kind of hit on Netflix. It was, it was a very addictive. <laughs> and I think it was very interesting just watching how people express their grief. You know, some people had obviously prepared something that they wanted to do. Some people said a silent prayer. Some people crossed themselves. Some people bowed or curtsied. Others sort of would turn around and, and do a sort of a salute almost or a wave as if as if they were saying, you know, thank you. Thank you for your extraordinary decades of, of service as monarch. And, and in terms of your own role there, I mean, it's a very specific kind of broadcasting, mm. isn't it? Because you, you've obviously got to be sombre. You've got to be aware of the huge importance of the moment but still keep those those that those viewers attention yes I, I, to be honest i think that the role of a commentator was was really to say very little simply to explain you know some of the events that were happening that people might not immediately understand what they were or what their significance was to point out you know a few of the people involved and to to give a clue as to to what role they played in in organizing the events but really most of it spoke for itself you know watching watching uh, the king and his siblings, watching the Prince of Wales, his siblings and his cousins uh, standing around the coffin as they did on the Friday and, and Saturday nights, the images spoke for themselves. You know, there was really no need to embellish that with, with, with very many words. I think the other thing that struck me, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm sure you've seen those pictures of the coronation, that are so saturated with colour, they sort of look almost technicolour. You know, the, the Queen's skin glows, her robes glow, the colours. And it looked a little bit like that at times in Westminster Hall, the sun streaming through the windows, that wonderful dark oak ceiling that dates back to the 14th century, the scarlet and the, 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 the gold and silver of the military uniforms. It, it was the, the, the red and the, the purple cloths on the catafalque and on the, the beer carrying the coffin. It, it looked almost unreal. These were extraordinarily bright, highly coloured images of something that that you know, we, we will never see again, I don't mm, think. Mm, very, very visually arresting. Now, of course, you talk about the Prince of Wales, who that, that is now, of course, Prince William, yes, uh, yes. now that we have uh, uh, Prince Charles III. And Prince William has uh, just uh, come out and actually made quite, quite a, a big contribution to a, a very timely debate, and that is about online harm. Yes, this is uh, the week that, uh, that uh, the Meta, who own uh, Facebook and Instagram, have been in court. The inquest that has been happening here into the death of Molly Russell, a teenager who killed herself in November 2017 after viewing a barrage of material on social media linked to self-harm, depression, suicide, um, described by uh, uh, Oliver Sanders KC, the, the family lawyer, as being a litany of self-hate. Uh, uh, thousands of, of, of images that were viewed 
by uh, Molly Russell. Uh, and it has it feels like a bit of a watershed moment, I think, in that the online companies are finally being forced to face up to what is out there and 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 not sort of hide behind this kind of idea that really it's it, it's up to us what we view uh, and and i think you know ian russell molly's father who has led this extraordinary campaign i know him a, a little I, uh, he's a, a television director and i've i've worked with him a, f- a few times he's a he's a great man dealing with this terrible, uh, inconceivable loss of a child, but doing it in such, a, in such a public way by saying, this death, the death of my beloved daughter Molly, cannot, cannot be wasted. And, and I think he has been an extraordinarily effective campaigner. Uh, and as you say, uh, he has been uh, uh, supported by the Prince of Wales, who, who, who's released a tweet this morning uh, 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 defending him. And uh, right from the beginning has been very supportive of Ian Russell. He met him, first of all, back in 2019, put his arm around his shoulder and said, look, whatever I can do to help. And I think it's, uh, it's an indication of a very human side of, of, of the new Prince of Wales. And, mm. and, and his support, I think, has been very, very vital. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course, brings into sharp focus the, the responsibility that these big internet companies have uh, and what they're doing about it. And obviously, there, there's a lot of strong feeling that not enough has been done so far. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, Liz Lagone from Meta, who uh, was was in the the coroner's court defending uh, Meta, Facebook, Instagram's position, uh, very carefully, because, of course, she had to walk this path between appearing compassionate and expressing grief, but without, of course, accepting any responsibility. You can imagine how much she'd been coached uh, leading up to, to 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 the inquest to make sure she didn't say the wrong thing. And I think, you know, that mean, means inevitably she came across as being rather dispassionate about about the whole thing. She was attacked by Oliver Sanders, who lost his temper very, very visibly uh, at one point in court, saying, for goodness sake, you know, take some responsibility for this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the exact words. Um, as, as Sanders said, in the last six months of her life, Molly Russell liked or shared 16,300 images, of which 2,100 were of a depressive uh, self-harm or suicidal nature. Uh, it was a minority of content, Lagone responded. A minority, but 2,100 is a lot. I don't know, was, was Lagone's response to that. I mean, it, it, it did feel that it was really a moment for, uh, for responsibility for, to be taken. And also, you know, the, the FT picks up on the nature of algorithms uh, in access to this material. Algorithms, the computer rules that control the order of posts social media users see, have been at the front and centre in the Russell case. Uh, the paper uh, reports today depression-related content was emailed to her by Pinterest. Instagram suggested accounts that referred to suicide and self-harm. Russell being able to binge harmful videos, images and clips, some of which were selected and provided without Molly requesting them. So she got onto this terrible roller coaster that once you'd looked at a few of these things, we all know it from our own Instagram and social media feeds. You express an interest in one thing, particularly with Instagram, and you are then bombarded with images that relate to that, even if your interest in them is is very tangential. I mean, I, I just hope and pray that this doesn't now just disappear and, and, and life goes back to normal, because if it does, there are going to be other people like Molly whose uh, depression, whose lack of self-confidence, whatever it was, are fed 
by this this terrible machine. Absolutely. Petra, we're going to return to our uh, discussion of the newspapers in just a moment. Right now, though, let's get a word from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. I was just completing check-in at the hotel when he arrived. Like me, Vitaly Klitschko, mayor of Kyiv, was in Prague to attend the summit of the cities. But, let's be clear, that's where the comparisons end. Klitschko is vast, a fighter of international fame in the boxing room and now out of it too, so he almost felt sorry for the jostle of meaty bodyguards who had travelled with him from Kyiv because he looked as though he could scoop them all up and place them in his pockets, the merest hint of trouble. But more of him in a moment. Let me explain why we are here. The summit of the cities ran across Monday and Tuesday this week and included two mornings of closed sessions at the mayor's residence, which Monocle attended with our jaunty observer hats on, to discuss how to support Ukrainian cities, the energy crisis, and how to ensure that populists and tyrants don't undermine European values. Then, in the afternoon, there were open sessions at the Centre for Architecture and Metropolitan Planning, a.k.a. CAMP. Many of these were moderated by me, as Mr Monocle, to bring the same voices to a wider audience and to talk about how cities can deliver quality of life for all. The host was the mayor of Prague, Zdeněk Hajib, who, in a piece of bad timing, had fared badly in weekend elections. And the two days also wrapped in a meeting of the Pact of Free Cities, founded three years ago by the mayors of Bratislava, Budapest, Warsaw and Tirana. Oh, and an EU cities dialogue too. But now... A word for Prague. It takes less than two hours to fly between London and the Czech capital, but it feels so gloriously distinct. The centre of the city remained largely undamaged after the Second World War and so is full of glorious early 20th century apartment buildings and old palaces embellished with numerous architectural flourishes and a ridiculous quantity of statuary. A man with a big chisel is never short of a karuna, as I'm sure they must have said back then in Prague. Wherever you look, there seems to be some stony-faced soul peering down on you. Arches are seemingly held aloft on the shoulders of naked women. I'd have recommended to the sculptor giving them at least a gilet, as it gets nippy around here come winter. And then there's cheese. On Sunday night, once I'd eased back through the meaty lobby, my urbanist companion, Carlotta, and I went for a quick beer with a team from camp who took us to a bar that was about the length of a subway station. They suggested that we eat something and soon I had a plate of breaded fried cheese and boiled potatoes. It was heaven. I also learned that, so that you can look manly yet barely drink, you can order a beer that comes in a vast glass but is essentially foam. Better cultural insights can be gleaned by you visiting yourself, but do have the cheese. We've made an entire episode of The Urbanist about the summit, but for those of you too lazy to press play, a few highlights. On stage, Klitschko was impressive, and if his bodyguards appeared diminutive standing next to him, the subsequent photographs that I have seen of me interviewing him 
made me look like a meerkat with a crooked neck looking up at a rhino. I mean that as a compliment, Mr Klitschko. He speaks calmly, gets the measure of the room, makes clear that Kiev's fight is everyone's fight. He said, If we are not successful, other former Soviet countries will follow. We are fighting to defend you. This is not a joke. Just a year ago, people said Russia will never invade Ukraine. But there were other standout turns. Matashvalo, the mayor of Bratislava, Rafael Traskowski, the mayor of Warsaw, Erion Veliai, the mayor of Tirana, Anistinamaki, deputy mayor of Helsinki, Remigius Shimashis, mayor of Vilnius, and Barcelona's head of international relations, Philippe Roca Blasco. What's impressive is how these civic figures are doing so much, helping Ukraine in material ways. Prague donated buses and trams, and with opened arms solidarity, and developing nimble climate and energy strategies. Oh, and also promoting cooperation as never before. But finally today, a shout out to the folks at camp. They have an amazing 1970s building that they're developing into a lively hub for urbanism. A good-looking bookshop, a cafe, exhibition space, as well as taking the debate about city-making out into Prague. The name of their centre, also made for a sometimes amusing running order. Andrew comes on stage to camp music, for example. As you can imagine, I was terribly disappointed not to hear Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive as I strode up. I think it would have been a fitting rallying cry. Perhaps I might suggest that next time. Many, many thanks there to Andrew Tuck and this is Monocle on Saturday. Well, I Will Survive, of course, is a song that perhaps Liz Truss, our British Prime Minister, uh, might want to sing, Petrot. She's been facing a lot of problems this week. Well, I'm just thinking it's the, the Tory party conference in Birmingham uh, this week and, uh, of course, Labour had their conference in Liverpool last week and for the first time ever opened the conference singing the national anthem, the new words, God save the king. Uh, they still finished as they always have done, with the red flag, the, the, the International Socialist uh, Anthem. Uh, and there was quite a lot of kind of talk before the National Anthem was sung about whether it was the right thing uh, for Labour to do. But actually, in the hall, it, it seemed to be uh, widely accepted, welcomed and sung lustily by, by most of the, the delegates. So maybe uh, in Birmingham, the, the, the place to start is with a bit of uh, Gloria Gaynor. Um, <laughs> as the FT reports this morning, Trust comes to Birmingham not with the glow of a newly elected Prime Minister, but as the head of a party traumatised by the economic fallout of Kwesi Kwarteng's statement and trailing Labour in the polls by massive margins. Um, a big story here in the UK on Thursday was Liz Truss's appearance on BBC local radio stations. Uh, the BBC has a, a network of, uh, of nearly 40 uh, uh, stations in counties and cities across uh, provincial England. Uh, and the Prime Minister perhaps decided that would be a safer place to be than being grilled by the Today programme on Radio 4 or by you here on Monocle 24. Because she disappeared from sight after that mini-budget was yes, announced. Yes, nothing, nothing had been said. She needed to, to, to make a, a return to the public statement, to the public field and, and to get her message out there. Well, she had a pretty rough time from the eight local radio presenters who interviewed her, um, both about the financial collapse uh, as, a result of, uh, as a result of the the, the fiscal event, the mini-budget, uh, about the shooting up of interest rates, about people's problems getting mortgages, which, of course, is something that is affecting 
a huge number of people in this country, including me, who spent most of Tuesday scrabbling around trying to get an application together before a product went off sale. I got my application in. It went off sale about an hour later. I'm crossing fingers. I don't know if I've got it, but I'm crossing fingers that I have, because if I haven't, it'll be hundreds of pounds more uh, to pay each month than than what I pay at the moment. Um, Colleagues are petrified, perplexed and very angry, uh, said one government member. Um, Those MPs who were already sceptical about uh, Liz Truss have looked at the events of this week and started panicking. And I think those local radio interviews, you know, where it did sound at times as if there was an aide standing by passing her pieces of paper with 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 the answers on them uh, 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 didn't 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 reassure many i mean one um one thing that the ft points out will be a consolation for trust is that rishi sunak uh, the former chancellor under boris johnson and the other contender for leadership of the Conservative Party uh, won't be in Birmingham. And Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, has also indicated that he won't be at the conference. So those two big lions, you know, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, both potentially standing around saying, oh, I told you so, uh, <laughs> won't, won't be there. Um, Rishi Sunak, though, interestingly, is staying as a Member of Parliament. He's the Member of Parliament for Richmond in North Yorkshire, very safe uh, conservative seat. And there was some speculation that he would go and perhaps even go to America. Uh, he has property in California. He has a history in, 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 in banking, investment banking, and that he might just go back to that to avoid the public scrutiny that is still very much there for backbench MPs as much as it is for the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he, of course, came under huge, huge scrutiny um, earlier on in the year. But it seems he's not doing that. He's going to stay in Parliament. So whether he thinks uh, there is a chance that, 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 that the leadership might be uh, uh, up again uh, is an interesting is an interesting question. But mm. it feels like feels like it's going to be a very tough conference for Liz Truss. Added to which, she's she's not the greatest public speaker. Uh, Boris Johnson, the previous Prime Minister, could wow crowds. Whatever you thought of his politics, he was a very charismatic figure when he stood up to make speech. Even if, as he sometimes was, he was kind of talking rubbish. Uh, <laughs> Liz Truss can't, doesn't, I don't think, have the, the public speaking skills to deliver no. on that in the same way. No. So that that won't help her next week. Yeah. Uh, well, let's look at Sunak's replacement, a man who's been dubbed by the press Kama Kwasi Kwarteng <laughs> uh, because of his apparently suicidal fiscal policy. Uh, who is he? There's a big um, uh, piece on, on, on just who, who Kwarteng is. Yeah, he's 47. Uh, his doctoral thesis was on 17th century currency policy, uh, frequently peppers his conversation with historical reference to previous economic crises, according to a business leader who knows him well. This is a profile by Sebastian Payne and Delphine Strauss uh, in today's Financial Times. They talked to Tristram Hunt, uh, former Labour MP, uh, director of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, who uh, shared a flat with him as a student. Um, Previously told the FT that Kwarteng was quite ungovernable in his convictions, but conventional in his tastes. He's someone who is very much at home in an institution, whether university or parliament. He's usually happy as long as he has a warm canteen lunch on a tray at half past twelve. Well, who, who wouldn't be happy with that? Um, Goes on, some some colleagues admire his willingness to challenge conventional wisdom. Talking to Kwasi is never boring. He's an iconoclast, just the sort of person you want in government, a fellow cabinet minister says. Others think this strays into overconfidence. Kwasi isn't exactly known for crossing the T's and dotting the I's. One senior Tory MP remarks, he's always been phenomenally arrogant. 
Well, that does seem to come across, I must say, and this this absolute conviction that challenging the economic orthodoxy is the right way to go. Yes, and 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 I think what has worried a lot of people is is where is the advice coming from? You know, a lot of people miss the fact that in the week of of, of the, the week leading up to the funeral of Her Late Majesty, uh, Sir Tom Scholar, uh, the the top. Treasury civil servant was was sacked. You know, someone who would have been in a position to give good advice, and uh, there's a suggestion that 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 they didn't immediately take. Uh, the advice of the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility. They have now asked the OBR to, to come up and look at, at, at that budget. It'll be interesting to see whether whether or not they do take any notice of that. Um, so, so perhaps the, the, the advisers who could be there offering, offering caution, offering advice, offering input are, are, are not. Mm. Well, of course, one thing this has done is give uh, the media so much material. Uh, and indeed, our own Andrew Muller uh, has his unique take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week... People, people, please. These are all very fair and reasonable points, indeed no more or less than a summary of the thinking of all decent citizens. But the opening stanzas of this week's monologue are rather reliant on a segue from the subject of money to the subject of Pink Floyd, and so a song called Money by Pink Floyd will obviously be enormously helpful in this specific circumstance. Look, we'll we'll try to keep it low in the mix. Well, I you can don't buy it. I'm Maybe sorry, I just don't buy it. I don't know. Make a stash. And actually, these rumblings of discontent tee up an even better introduction than the rather more prosaic one we'd sketched out, as we have learned this week, and this should just about land, that mutiny is in the air more broadly. Yes, that works. Adapt and improvise. Before we learned this week that the Bank of England, not hitherto widely noted as a hotbed of insurrectionists, had decided that the UK's experiment with the exciting economic theories of new Prime Minister Liz Truss and new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng had gone on long enough, specifically 22 days, less two weeks off for a royal funeral. This was after we all learned from looking at charts that the Truss-Kwarteng attempt to jumpstart Britain's economy had been rather more evocative of the climactic scene of Thelma and Louise, at which the Bank of England spent 65 billion quid of our money buying UK government bonds in a frantic attempt to persuade anyone else that UK government bonds were still a thing anybody should want to buy. We learned that the Prime Minister, as of this recording, Liz Truss, had resolved to take her case directly to the people via the medium of BBC Local Radio, having perhaps failed to calculate that, just perhaps, local radio's presenters are actually likelier to make the most of their one shot at the PM than the big-name broadcasters the PM may well run into again at some agreeable garden party. We learned that it went badly with Sarah Julian at BBC Nottingham, a couple of people have said to me here in Nottingham, this is like a reverse Robin Hood. That, that, that simply isn't true. Which By bit far of the biggest part Which of the mini... Of well... That the tax the cuts are disproportionately benefiting the wealthiest. Not brilliantly with Rima Ahmed at BBC Leeds. 
I am really glad that you are here as well, because since Friday, since your Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget, the pound has dropped to a record low, the IMF has said that you should reevaluate your policies, and the Bank of England has had to spend £65 billion to prop up the markets because of what they describe as a material risk. Where have you been? Well... And downright suboptimally with James Hansen at BBC Bristol. Prime Minister, with respect, that so is we the get same scripted answer you've given going. to every BBC local radio station this morning. You've got the Bank of England stepping in now to try and clean up a mess. A government has caused that has never happened. We have a very, very difficult economic global situation because of the war that Vladimir Putin has perpetrated in Ukraine. And countries are under pressure around yeah, but the this world. This isn't this isn't Putin. This isn't just about Putin. I mean, your chancellor on Friday opened up the stable door and spooked the horses so much you could almost see the economy being dragged behind them. Still, we learned that should Liz Truss fail to last the 14 more weeks which would deliver her from the ignominy of being the UK's shortest-serving Prime Minister, outlasting George Canning, and he died in office, an exciting career as a speak-your-weight machine or talking clock awaits. Anyway, fade the music back up. Come on, it's only for a bit. Before we learned that the UK's Conservative Party was not the only venerable British institution whose reputation for stately reliability was being swiftly unravelled by one of its members going increasingly rogue. Yes, that was the Pink Floyd segue. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No, thank you, thank you. You're, you're all too kind. All right, settle down. We will now have some music which isn't Pink Floyd to evoke the music of Pink Floyd languishing unheard, as is the essence of our next bit. I don't know, surprise me. Before we learned that the forthcoming European tour of Pink Floyd founder member and that uncle on Facebook, Roger Waters, has been shortened by the length of next April's engagements in Krakow. The local city council, which owns the venue, yanked Waters' shows by way of response to Waters' serial idiotic interventions regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which have included penning a supremely pompous open letter, Pink Floyd, supremely pompous, imagine, to Ukraine's first lady, Olena Zelenska, urging her to ask her husband to spare everybody the terrible inconvenience occasioned by their country being attacked. And we learn that Krakow Council has now adopted a resolution declaring Roger Waters persona non grata, a noble stance which should have been long since adopted by cities across the civilised world on artistic grounds alone. But it's a start. And we learned that cows have been deployed as a weapon of civil disobedience. And yes, listeners with a deeply felt aversion to bovine puns may wish to fling their laptops or phones through the window into a neighbouring pond around now. 
We learned that in the Indian state of Gujarat, charitable trusts which look after cows, held by many locals to be sacred, had grown aggrieved by a lack of government funding and had therefore set their charges free, and that various government institutions in Gujarat were as a consequence besieged and or invaded by cattle, wandering loose from their usual cohort, demonstrating that, yes, a riot is the language of the unheard. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much for those animal puns. Let's take a pause. Oh, oh so into dogs now. You're so clever. <laughs> Uh, dogs and kitchens specifically, Petra. Yes, I, sometimes I, uh, I I live in North London. I live uh, near a, a hill called Primrose Hill, and sometimes I see this very glamorous lady dressed in black with uh, fine pearls around her neck out for a walk <laughs> with her dog. Yes, listener, this is Georgina Goldman of this parish. I adore dogs. I'm down in Cornwall next week, and I can't wait to be out walking uh, my sister-in-law's uh, Springer Spaniels, uh, Rocky and Bell, give them a mention. Uh, and this all <laughs> ties in very neatly because you're having a new kitchen installed. And the Times reports this morning that as if Britain did not already have a reputation as a country of dog lovers, makers of bespoke kitchens are reporting a rapid rise in demand for design features for pets. So I want to know, in your new kitchen, will there be A, an integrated dog bed area? And B, will there be an integrated dog shower? So it might be sitting somewhere between the dishwasher the cooker, and I'm guessing there's going to be a wine fridge. There's most definitely in your, be a in wine your new kitchen. Fridge. So is there going to be is there going to be a little dog area for your dog? Not that your dog ever rests very much. No, she doesn't. Uh, do you know what I had not thought of it before I saw this article? Um, I I it just hadn't. I, I guess because everything just belongs to her anyway. <laughs> uh, changes in work patterns mean people can spend uh, uh, enough time working from home to care for a dog. So there's obviously been a massive uptake in the number of people who have dogs. Uh, but often, because of working from home, the kitchen has become the hub of the house, hence the remodelling to include dog spaces. Mm. Well, um, I mean, certainly but we are having to remodel because there's so much activity in mm. our kitchen right now. My partner's just starting a micro bakery. Mm. Wow. Um, and so there's just bread going on all of the time. So will there be fresh, freshly baked products uh, at Monocle 24 be. on a Saturday morning? <laughs> Absolutely. What I really love about this article is, um, this is a kitchen maker, he says clients were mostly asking about dogs as there was no guarantee cats would use anything designed for them. <laughs> yeah, I think they take one look and think, I don't approve of this kitchen design. <laughs> dogs are far more uh, malleable about these things. Absolutely. Well, uh, Petrock, I think that we have got to make an, an appointment to have another walk on from Rosehill. I'd love that. Very woof, woof. soon. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much to my guest, Petrock Trelawney, and also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, uh, and to our producer, Rhys James. That's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Uh, and tomorrow, Monocle on Sunday is here. Uh, do tune in at 10am Zurich time. Our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be your host for that. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.